figure out a way to re-preach this sermon so I can put it online. Um, sermon on the plane, right? So we're talking about this, this next section. Last week we talked about this idea of Jesus changing the scorecard, right? So if you remember last week, um, we talked about the idea of the fact that being humble, um, or needy or sorrowful or persecuted, Whereas in the world's eyes, that might mean that, that we were lesser or that God had abandoned us or something like that. It doesn't necessarily mean that you were outside of God's will in those things, right? Or that he is angry with you. Um, and by the same token, um, peace, comfort, happiness, acceptance, those things aren't necessarily signs of God's blessing on your life. Those things could be the symptom of your unfaithfulness, actually. And that, that, um, you were being allowed to live in these things, even though you were not following God rightly. Now, it may not be necessarily where you would gravitate towards in your thinking. After we read those two texts last week and talked about the blessings and the woes, um, you might not have thought about this, but that sort of sets up, or it could set up and has set up a dichotomy within in society, within culture, right? It, it puts these two sides out there. There is the 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 oppressed side, right? And that there is the 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 oppressor side. Um, you could look at it that way, right? The haves and the have nots, um, the humble and the proud, the persecutors and the persecuted, right? And so notice I didn't say the persecutors and and the victims because I think there's something specific um, in that idea. Um, the Christian faith changes being the persecuted, right? It changes what victimhood looks like because victimhood um, is, is different when we embrace the suffering that God has said will come into our lives and we keep our eyes on Jesus during that time, right? It changes the nature of those things. Um, and obviously there's a lot we could say about that. That's a whole um, bunch of stuff that we could get into on that. But one outcome of that idea of this sort of Jesus presenting these things and, and creating almost like these two opposing sides is that it would be easy or it could be easy for those two sides to then be adversarial to each other, right? Like if you're talking about one group persecuting another group, one group who has and another that doesn't, one that is needy and one that is, is opulent or something like that, it could be easy to see how those two groups would be against each other in some way, adversarial to each other. Again, we mentioned Marxism last week. And Marxism would say that is exactly what should happen, that there should be an adversarial relationship between the haves and the have-nots. There should be even violence, even revolution for the people who have to be taken from and the people who have not to, to receive. We should probably acknowledge, too, that that is a very human kind of response, right? Like, that's just what people do. Okay, people have a tendency to respond um, uh, aggressively when they are being um, the, the 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 receiver of an aggression, right? Um, there's a movie, The Untouchables. Some of you guys have seen The Untouchables, right? It's a movie from the 80s. It's about the mob in, in Chicago in the 1920s or 30s or whatever, and Sean Connery's in it. And there's this great line that Sean Connery gives, and he says, he says, if they bring a knife to the fight, you bring a gun. If they send one of your guys to the hospital, you send one of their guys to the morgue, right? That's my best Sean Connery. Like, I worked on it for a while today, okay? Um, but that's that's the attitude, right? Okay, that is sort of this, and then he says, that's the Chicago way, 
right? And it's sort of like, Sean, that's the, that's the world's way. Okay. The world's way is retaliation. The world's way is you push me and then I'm going to push you back. Okay. And maybe even more than just push you back in terms of like a, a justice retribution idea, but even maybe a vengeance idea where we say, no, I'm going to do even worse back to you. Right. So we go back to Genesis and we read this story in Genesis of Lamech. And Lamech, it says, this person has injured me, so I killed him or whatever, right? That he has, that he has done something that harmed me, so I have turned that back on him tenfold or whatever, right? That's a very fallen human way of responding to these things, okay? Responding to violence, responding to aggression, responding to want, responding to injustice. And yet Jesus does something immediately again to change the scorecard, right? To say that the way things normally work is not the way that they're supposed to work for the believer, okay? What does he say in verse 27 through 28? He says there's these four sort of commands. Verse 27, but I say to you who hear, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Okay? Four commands. Now notice a couple of things here, right? Sort of his introductory remarks. Interestingly, these are the first commands that Jesus gives us in the entire book of, of Luke. Right? We're six chapters in and Jesus has not concretely told us to do anything yet. Like he's told us a lot of things about the nature of things and who he is and, and, and sort of these, these different, the way the world is, right? But he hasn't stopped and said, Hey, this is something that I want you to do. This is the way that I want you to live. This is the first time, um, in, in the gospel of Luke so far, right? That's important, I think, for, for a second reason, right? Um, the, the things that Jesus said, these are the first commands, okay? Because notice when he talks about love, he is not appealing to feeling, right? He's not saying any of these like, you know what? If you, if there's somebody, an enemy, you know, you should try to work up some kind of feelings of, 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 of love and forgiveness for these people, right? It's a command that he gives us, all right? He commands us to love our enemies. And that's important because these are things that we do. Okay. We recognize that they may not be things that we feel at the beginning or maybe even ever in some cases, but they are things that we are commanded to do regardless. And so he says, he speaks in these sort of different aspects or different categories of action, but they're pretty comprehensive in terms of, of the way we would engage with anybody, right? So what does he say? He says, one, love your neighbor, okay? Pretty broad, you could say maybe, but that speaks to our will again, right? Um, our intention. It says, you are to do this. You are to love this person who is your enemy. Moreover, you're to do good to them. Okay, do good. That's a, that's a, that's an action phrase, right? It's talking about how we are treating this person, our actions towards this person. We are to bless them instead of, as opposed to cursing them. So what? That's speaking towards our our speech, right? The things that we say, the stuff that comes out of our mouth towards that person. Are we speaking in a blessing way? Or are we speaking in a cursing way? And then lastly, to prayer. And it says you are to pray for those who abuse you, okay? And so that's about thoughts, certainly. And, and, and we could, like, you know, say thoughts are different from actions. But I think there's another way in which we could say, no, our thoughts are part of our actions, right? Our thoughts are intentional things that we, 
that we think and put out there. It's something we do also. And so it's not just about, it's, 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 it's also about our prayer, um, which is our inter- intercession before God, right? We're going before God and asking of God things for the blessing and good and love of this person who is our enemy, okay? So these four commands, they're just right there. They're very um, blatant in some ways, although at the same time kind of very general, comprehensive. Um, but at the same time, we sort of start asking questions probably. Because I don't know about you, but when I read those four things, I start going, like, what kind of situations are you talking about, God? Like, that I'm supposed to love my enemy and, and, and do good to someone who is persecuting me, who is trying to do me harm, who is trying to abuse me? Like, how does this work? Are there exceptions to this, right? Are there ways in which I can say, no, nah, I'm, not, I'm not called to... to um, do good to this person because of this scenario or something like that. Well, as we ask that question, how do you, how do you mean God? Like, how do we do this? He gives us four examples of this. Okay. And you're going to notice something. Luke loves fours. Okay. He's always like other, there's other places in the Bible where guys love threes or guys love sevens or whatever. Luke loves fours for some reason. And he's always giving you like four points or four, four words or whatever. Right. And so he's given us these four commands of Jesus. Now he gives us these four concrete examples, four kind of concrete examples. Verse 29, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, right? You're struck on one side of the cheek. They got loud, sorry. Uh, then turn your other cheek so that it can be struck too. So the first one he mentions is a situation of kind of physical attack. Now, most scholars think that this is not like a an attack on your life, but more of an insult kind of situation, right? So you remember like old cartoons where the person would take off their glove and like slap you in the face or whatever with it. It's probably not someone who is violently trying to um, kill you. That's not the reference here, but it really doesn't matter because we get into the same kind of things right after that, right? This idea of people who abuse you, okay? That certainly would be um, something more significant than just an insult. But what does he say? He says, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn your other cheek to them as well. Second example, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Matthew's version gives us a little different picture of it, maybe a clarification or, or maybe not. If He says, if anyone would sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Okay. And so, um, so, so, so Matthew puts kind of a legal dimension on it or whatever, but, but Luke does not, right? He just says, if somebody takes something from you, um, then, then don't worry about it. In fact, let them have the other thing as well. Okay. Don't, don't be bent out of shape about it. Verse 30, give to everyone who begs of you. So again, probably the idea of a literal beggar, like somebody who is on the street and has no home and has no money and is asking of you. But again, he doesn't specify that. It could be anybody who asks something of you, right? Anyone who needs something from you. And then lastly, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. All right? And so... This could be maybe somebody who borrowed something. I don't know. It doesn't specify, right? Theft, 
government seizure, right? Um, the verse in Matthew that corresponds along with this talks about the idea of if someone forces you to go one mile with them, go with you, go with them a second mile as well. And that references back to the Roman days where a Roman soldier who was serving in the military and on march from one location to another could grab a bystander, say, put my backpack on your back and walk one mile. And then I'll take it back and then you can go about your business. That was something that the Romans could legally require a person, just a random person on the street to do, right? Okay. Um, Jesus is saying, if someone comes and asks something of you, somebody comes to take something from you, um, then don't demand it back. Okay. So here's the thing I think is the case. Um, we read these passages and man, I don't know about you, but my mind starts like spinning going, yeah, but, right? Like you, you can't, Jesus, mean for us to take this straight literally, right? There are just too many crazy things that could pop up. The yeah, buts just keep on popping into my head. What about injustice, God? Um, what about um, different kinds of persecution? What about bullying? Right. That's something that always pops up, uh, especially working with youth in this, because, you know, what? it seems to be the case that in in I've experienced this in life. Sometimes if, if a kid is being bullied, you know, it seems to work the best to fix that bullying situation is for the person who's getting bullied to just punch that person in the face. Right. And then all of a sudden it fixes things. It seems like it does. Right. And you go, isn't that what we should do just to rectify this situation? What about um, protecting the vulnerable? Right? Should we just sit there and look at people who are out in the community and the culture or something who are being oppressed by others? Maybe the, the categories of people we talk about, the widows and the orphans and the foreigner in our in our borders, right? Should we just look at that and say, man, you just gotta you just gotta bear up under this stuff, right? Like we shouldn't, we should turn the other cheek, we should let them take, we should not do anything. All right. Um these are legitimate questions, okay? Um, there are things that we need to ponder on, right? When it talks about, when it says um, to, to the one who takes, don't ask back, right? Is that saying that there is no legitimate legal recourse against these, somebody that does that? Because I don't think that's the case. There are places actually in the scripture where we see Christians taking people to court or whatever, right? Paul appeals to Caesar. He doesn't walk out into the crowds and say, you guys, I'm just handing myself over to you. You do with me what you want, beat me up and kill me. I don't care. What does he do? He says, no, I'm going to appeal to Caesar. I'm going to, I'm going to take this thing to the next legal level. Okay. And so obviously there seems to be some kind of, there are some, some caveats there. We've talked in our church before about the ideas of toxic charity, right? And, and, um, when helping hurts is the name of one of the books that, that, that we've talked about, right? The idea that sometimes there are people who are in need, but the way we help them ends up actually hurting them in the long run, right? Okay. Is that something that we should take into account here? Because it just said when someone begs of you, right, give to them. Okay. All of these things are things that we need to consider, right? They are all um, issues that we need to be particularly thoughtful about. Okay. And I think there's some reality. There's not easy answers on all of these things. But before we are thoughtful, I think we should just take the words for what they say, okay? And just pause for a second, not saying that there aren't issues that speak into these things, 
There aren't caveats. There aren't exceptions. There aren't clarifications. We're not saying that that's not true, but for a moment we should just stop and sit in the difficulty of these passages and think about how counterintuitive they are, countercultural they are, counterhuman all of these passages are. They're not the way we usually deal with things, period, right? And moreover, these aren't platitudes, right? This is not Jesus just saying some kind of vague, bland stuff, right? When Jesus speaks these words, he's intending for us to think about the fact that this is a costly love that he is calling us to. And we're bad at it, right? This is a hard teaching when we really live it out. So again, before we start making caveats, maybe we should just stop and look to Jesus first and ask these questions of Jesus. Was he attacked? Was he persecuted? Was he reviled? Were things taken from him unjustly? And the answer is yes. And yet how did Jesus respond? Jesus is merciful. He is kind to his oppressors. He does not retaliate either in attitude or in action or even in his words, typically. The few times we see in scriptures where Jesus seems to kind of retaliate, like we could think of the the turning over of the money changers tables and things like that. In those cases, the attack was not on him, right? The attack was on the dignity and, and honor of God and the glory of God in the temple. And so, so we have to bring that into the whole thing too, but But typically, Jesus doesn't respond in those ways. Instead, what he does is he prays for his enemies, and he forgives them in the midst of suffering, and he trusts God for the outcome. So here's the deal. I think we convince ourselves that we're pretty loving people, especially as believers. um, We convince ourselves that we're pretty loving. Um, if you ask most people, most people, me, most people in here, um, if you have a moral issue in your life with hatred or vengeance or aggression or violence, I think most people would say, no, I think in general, I'm a, I'm a pretty loving person. But here's the deal. I think the reason why we say that is because we sort of assuage our consciences by offering up to God how we love people in our lives who are more easy to love. And so we say, well, I'm a loving person because look at the way I treat my friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, and things like that. And the truth is, is that in some ways that's a counterfeit love. So look what it says in verse 32. He says again, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive back, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Okay? You know, I said counterfeit love. That's probably a little bit of a provocative term, right? I'm not saying that our love for our families and our friends and our community, right, is fake. Okay? That's not... I'm not saying that, okay? Um, But what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying these kinds of love for friends and family and community, man, in a way, are completely commonplace. 
They're commonplace in the world. They're commonplace in the non-Christian culture. And they don't necessarily demonstrate any kind of specific, special, spiritually uh, uh, live kind of love. They seem to be functions, actually, of God's common grace and blessing on all of humanity as a whole. Okay, right? And so what does it say again? Kind of go through them. Do you love those who love you? People like family and friends and, and your tribe, right? Do you love those people? Jesus says, so what? Everybody loves those people in their own contexts. Animals love their own young, right? Their own herd or whatever. And you might look at me and say, yeah, well, Ash, not everybody does. Right, I know people who don't love their kids, don't love their wives, don't love their families, don't love their neighbors. Okay, fine. But when that is the case, that just points to the aggravated nature of how screwed up and fallen we are, right? Like nobody's looking to those people, to the, to the child abuser or to the traitor. Like nobody's looking to those people as the, uh, the exemplars of, of morality, right? And so, that's just an evidence of how far mankind can fall when we even hate our kin and our family and our neighbor, okay? But in general, man, people love their neighbors. People love their kids, right? People who've never heard the name of Jesus still love their kids and still love their wives and still love their friends that says nothing about us. Do good to those who do good to you. Is that your evidence of your loving nature? Civility? decency, social contract kind of theory or something like that, right? If you're not a jerk to me, I won't be a jerk to you, right? Jesus says, you want a cookie for that, right? Like, what's the deal? That There's nothing to that. Everybody does that. The whole world lives that way. If you're not a jerk to me, I won't be a jerk to you. Lend to those from whom you expect to receive does that make you generous? No, it makes you a businessman, right? It makes you a person who believes maybe in reciprocity or, or fairness or something, but it isn't love. But that's what we would do, right? We would say, no, I treat people fairly and I love my kids and, and, and I try to do right by those people who are around me. I'm a pretty loving person. And Jesus says, no, you're just a person. That's what people do. That's kind of the way God has designed us in terms of common grace um, and, and spiritual, um, a, a, a certain level of, of, of mother love and friend love and, and, and companionship community. He's just built into the way people are. Again, when these things are lacking, those common graces, they definitely show us the depths to which mankind has fallen and been deformed and twisted by our sin. But when they're present, just like the stuff we talked about in that last week, they're not necessarily any sign of particular love or particular faithfulness of a new and changed life towards God. Now, again, I would say probably their absence is evidence of something, but their presence is not necessarily. And so instead, what does he say to kind of summarize this section? Verse 35, he says, love your enemies, not your friends. Not your family. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to people that you expect nothing in return from. That's what love looks like. So maybe to pause for a second and just sit there with that. Ask yourself this question. 
which one of those is hardest for you? Which aspect of love is most difficult for you? Is it the attitudes of the heart? Is it harder to serve your enemy or harder to speak well of someone? Is it harder to ask for God's blessing in their life? Or maybe it's where your wallet meets the issue, right? Lots of people think they're very loving and generous until the moment comes when they it actually has to cost them something. And then all of a sudden that changes. I think here's the deal. Again, if we, if we really come to grips with this passage, I think it is frightening to us because it shows us how far we fall from what the standard of Jesus Christ actually is. It's the reason why either we convince ourselves that we are loving people, but look only to our friends and family and community as examples of that, or we do what we talked about a minute ago, we water down what it means to love and sacrifice for people. We water down the necessity of bearing up under suffering so much we give it so many exceptions and so many caveats that in, in the end, I mean, loving people doesn't really cost us anything, right? We just kind of con- continue to live the way we always have and said, none of the things that I'm not doing apply. Those aren't, those aren't things that I, I, I'm responsible for doing. Again, all that to say, man, this is hard stuff, okay? This is deep faith, okay? This is martyr spirituality. And it's not something that we, I think, normally live in. So where do we find the faith and the strength to live in this way? Like, what is, where does that come from? Well, Jesus, in the next passage, gives us, you probably guessed it, four motivations for a life lived loving enemies. Why would we do that? You know, motivations are, are often multifaceted in the Bible. Right? There's rarely just one reason that God says do this. And sometimes we try to boil it down to some of those things like we'll say, oh, well, the one reason is the glory of God or something like that. Right? And that's, that's not untrue, but usually it's a little more multifaceted than that. We can look at it from different angles, and that's exactly what Jesus does in this passage. And he gives us four different motivations, starting in verse 31. Number one, he says this. And, and what we're doing is we're doing 31 and then we're skipping down, okay? So we kind of skipped past 31 earlier, but we'll come down to, to the rest of the second. Verse 31, he says, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them, right? We know what that passage is. That it's, it's, it's attained a name throughout the history of the church. That's called the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto, do unto you. Right, And the truth is, is this, and this is why it's a motivation. Man, when everybody lives that way, man, it's a, it's a great ethic, right? When everybody lives that way, it makes for a pretty great family or, or community or church or society, right? If everybody is always thinking, I know how I would like to be treated, and so I'm going to treat other people to the same extent. Um, it, it makes for a lot of love and a lot of respect for people. We all want those things, right? We all want to be merciful. I mean, we all want people to be merciful to us when we mess up. We want people to be generous to us if we're in need. And so Jesus tells us, man, all over the place, he says, love your neighbor as yourself, right? The way you want to be loved, love other people, okay? That's a pretty good ethic. It's a pretty good motivation um, for how we are to act this out, all right? It's the second greatest commandment, in fact. 
When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is likened unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? So that's the first part, right? The golden rule is a pretty good ethic. Okay? Two, going down to verse the, the second half of verse 35, he says, also why you should love people like this is because your reward will be great in heaven, and you will be sons of the Most High. Okay? Reward is a motivation in the Christian life. Now, sometimes Christians act like doing things because we will benefit from them in some way, um, somehow like sullies or diminishes the, the goodness of a thing, right? Like if you're going to get anything out of this um, as, a, as a secondary effect of something, then, then that makes it somehow less good to do. I mean, that's not a Christian idea. That doesn't come to us through Christianity. It comes in through other places, probably... Greek philosophy and the Stoics and things like that, right? God all through the scripture is promising us rewards for faithfulness, okay? And so that's not a negative. So we can think about it that way. We can say, you know what? Just like we read last week when it said, don't worry about being poor, don't worry about being hungry, don't worry about being persecuted. Why? Because God's got a kingdom for you and God is going to meet your needs and God is going to be there for you, right? That's a reward situation. God is going to meet these needs and fulfill these needs. And the same thing is true here. If you, if you love as God has called us to, there is a great reward for that in heaven. And moreover, you will be sons of the most high, right? You will be treated as the very children of God. And so the God who sees lives and knows hearts and rewards faithfulness will reward your faithfulness in these things, even in the midst of difficulty. Okay? And so that's the second reason. The third reason, verse 36, he says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. And so one of the things that we, again, when we start thinking about how the morality and the ethic of, of Christianity and of of the whole Bible works in general, what we understand is that we are supposed to emulate God, right? We are supposed to mirror God. The reason why something is good is because that's the way God is. And so God is merciful, and so we should be merciful too. And so when we start talking about character, you say, man, why should I love people? And the answer is, is because this is how God is. You have been made in his image, and therefore that's how you should be. You should be merciful to the person who doesn't deserve mercy. And then finally, and this is this is maybe the, it, it's subtle here, right? It doesn't just spell it out exactly, but what else does it say? It says, not only is God merciful, be merciful because God is merciful, but it says, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God is kind to those who are ungrateful of his kindness. He is kind not to the people who are good and deserve it, but he is also kind to the people who are evil and stand against him. You know what we call that? We call that the gospel, right? The fact that Jesus Christ has come and saved those who did not deserve to be saved, who actually stood opposed to him, that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus came and died for us. Okay, And so the reality is the same thing that has saved us, the same gospel that has saved us is the same way that we should turn around and then live in terms of the world. It's in keeping with the very gospel. God is kind to the ungrateful. And guess who the ungrateful is? It's you. 
You're the ungrateful. You are the person who has lived your entire life just like taking advantage of God's blessings and, 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 and then yet at the same time living however you pleased in many ways, right? You are the evil. You're the ones who, who have lived a life of sin and, and, and walked away from God in any number of ways. The proud, the unmerciful, the oppressors, right? That's who we are. And yet, what has God done for us? He has sent his very son into the world to live a perfect life in our place, to die a death on the cross in our place, and to be raised for our salvation, right? We are the ungrateful. We're the irresponsible. We're the ones who have squandered what God has done. We're the ones who have taken his blessing and bought booze and cigarettes with them, okay? We are those people. And yet, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. That's the motivation behind it. Just as he has saved us, now we are to treat other people in that light. And guess what the reality is? Just as Jesus was saving us, the world was hanging him on a cross and yelling obscenities at him and treating him as a criminal. The reality is, is that if we live this kind of lifestyle towards our enemies, probably the same thing is going to often happen. That we will be walked on, we will be treated poorly, and we may even be killed for it. Again, I don't say that cavalierly, right? Because, man, we look at the, the situation that we live in in America and we go, man, those kind of things are so far from us, it seems like. We don't have to worry about that kind of stuff, right? I don't have to worry about stormtroopers busting through the doors right now and shooting this place up. That's not something that we deal with. And yet there are people all over the world who do. People who deal with the reality of loving your enemies in light of suffering, in light of oppression, on a daily basis. And so I don't know exactly where to end on that. There's a command. There's an explanation. There's a motivation there. And yet I know that it is hard to do this. You know what another hard piece of it is? It's just like off the cuff. And I don't even have any enemies. Right? Like, who are my enemies? I don't have any enemies. I got people I kind of don't like, people who annoy me. I don't have enemies. Like, again, think of the blessing of that. Think of living in a world where you don't have anybody who you look at and go, that person is out for my destruction. Right? I don't have anybody like that in my life. I don't think I do. I hope I don't. Right? There may be some guy at home watching right now going, uh-huh, I got you, Ash. Right? But I don't think I've got any enemies. And so, again, maybe it makes it even harder in some ways for us to sit here and go, oh, yeah, I don't have to love my enemies because I don't even have any. There's just that old homeless guy that, you know, asks me for money every week. He's not my enemy. He's just that guy. And I'm not going to give him anything because, you know, he's just going to spend it on something that he shouldn't be doing anyway, right? We, we, we do those things in our heads all the time, and we make those excuses to ourselves. And I'm not saying there, again, I'm not saying that there aren't things that we need to take into consideration to be the most faithful we can be. But it is confronting to us, right? Jesus is telling us something that should make us go, the ethic of Christ is different from the whole way that everybody else everywhere for all time has done things. It's completely different. Amen? So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And what I want you to do is, is just talk to him. 
ask him to show you the places in your heart maybe that, that are, are um, maybe ask him that question at the beginning or in the middle that we said, right? What's, what's hardest for you about this? What is the piece that, that the yeah, but in your head, right? What's the piece that when I'm talking and you're reading this and the Holy Spirit's like stirring your heart, you go, I'm not going to be bullied, God. If somebody does something to me, I'm going back. I'm not going to be taken advantage of. If somebody tries to take something from me, I'm going to go get it back. I'm not going to be lied about and spoken ill about. If something happens, I'm going to go clear my name and I'm going to, I'm going to make it right in, in, in the society. What's the piece that sticks in your crawl? Okay. And let's just go to God in prayer for a minute. I'll come back up and close this, um, in just a second and, and, uh, Stephen will, Stephen will come and play for us and then we'll be dismissed. Okay. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, what great love that you have shown us. God, that we were your enemies and that you sent your own son to die for those enemies. That we were rebels. That we were insurrectionists. We were revolutionaries. God, we were rioters. And yet, you have reached out to us in mercy, in kindness, in goodness, and with the very life of your own son. Father, who am I that I would not even give up my reputation, my, my wealth, my possessions, if someone attacked me, and yet you have given up your own son Father, we confess that these things are beyond us. And yet we know that your spirit is calling us to them. God, that your word commands our lives in these ways. So we ask for strength, faith. God, in the time of trial, that we would be up to these things that we would be faithful to what you have called us to. God, if these things ever become a part of our, our daily lives, 
God, if we come to a time in, in the life of our community or our nation um, where persecution is a reality to a level far beyond what we experience now, God, that we would live faithfully knowing that you are good, you are righteous. Father, you make promises that you will bring all rights and all wrongs to account. God, that we will be rewarded for what we have done and that those who have um, done evil will be brought to judgment for those things. God, that you will reward us. God, and that you call us to live holy lives as you are holy. Father, we ask you to work all these things in our lives. Help us to be faithful people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's take this chance to respond to the Lord. So we were his enemy, and uh, he stepped out, and he was kind to us, extended all the grace towards us. Let's respond back to his goodness. You know, stand with me and sing together. I hear the Savior say, Amen.
thank you guys for being here uh, tonight. It's good to see everybody. Um, hope we see you next week. Um, hope you have a good week um, this week. Stay healthy. Be careful. Uh, wash your hands. Um, and, uh, and, and we'll see you next week. Here's this benediction as you go. Uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.